0: If we want to transform and and do things differently, we always have a big why. We have a purpose why we are going after. When I think about transformation, I say, how would you make a preferred way of working, which will create delightful experiences for people at the center of that change?
1: Don't conduct your analysis in isolation, because data is so incredibly powerful. Not defending just the tribe, but defending the organization. Those creative people that you really want to keep empowered, keep excited, keep motivated, keep thinking. A good experience pays dividends down the line. Here is a to break down in proximity. Welcome to We're Only Human, a podcast about human resources, business, technology, and the workplace. My name is Ben Eubanks, your host, and I'm so glad you're here. Hey, everyone, welcome back to We're Only Human. I hope that you're doing well, having a great day. I know that I say this probably every time, but I've been looking forward to this episode because I got a chance to talk to someone about what it takes to transform HR and what it takes to do that in a really meaningful and practical way. Because when we were chatting before we we came together for this recording, one of the things that we agreed on is a lot of people that talk about it do it in these very vague terms. So we're going to get into some of the specifics of how to measure impact and how to understand if you're really, your transformation is working, all those kind of things. It's going to be a tremendous conversation. And I'm so, so honored to have Shalu here with us to talk through this stuff. So welcome. Glad to have you.
0: Thank you, Ben, for having me. It's a passion of life to make things better. So it's nice to share my experiences and learnings with all.
1: Oh. That could apply in a thousand different ways to make things better as a passion in life. So goodness, before we get into some of the fun stuff, other than being passionate about making things better, can you tell us a little more about who you are and what you do, please?
0: Sure. So when I consider myself as as an HR transformation strategist and uh, more meaningfully, uh, I, I think I am a change influencer, all about saying, how do we work for our employees? So my current role in my organization is about talent supply chain transformation it is all about saying how do we staff the right people at the right time at the right uh, cost with the right skills and then i just added on to it to say with the right delightful experience so to me my my calling is about helping people think better in the context of how do you help people perform better so that's what I do in my job. And I love applying some of these learnings in my personal support that I do to non-government and non-profit organizations, which are more focused on education. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things.
1: Okay, wonderful. That's incredible. So when you're not thinking about change and transformation, what do you like to do? How do you spend your free time other than volunteering and sharing that expertise in other sorts of ways? I'm just kind of curious.
0: I love reading books, but I'm not the kind of person who gives annual 60 book target. I usually pick a mix of books and I would pick some books that force you to deeply think. I recently finished Essentialism. I read uh, Damon Santola's Change recently. It really changed my view on things. I love Brene Dare to Lead. So I do read a couple of those things that inspire me and uh, force me to think differently about my choices at work and life. But yeah, I also enjoy reading a Tintin and seeing some superhero movies and all the <laughs> series that comes with my kids. So I do have that fun part as well. So okay. I have my time when I do that.
1: Okay, wonderful. I know that when I stop and think about someone who thinks about transformation and strategy and all those kind of things, you imagine that's their whole world, but it can't be. And what's really interesting, there's a book, here's a recommendation for you, by the way, on books. There's a book called Range that says. The people who are the best performers in an area often are generalists. They have this broad range of things that they bring to the table and it allows them to be successful. And again, we'll probably dive into some of the fun stuff around that in the conversation. But one of the things I I love to understand about the people I get to talk to is you're not your job title. You're not the thing you do every day. You're all these other things put together. And that's what makes you those things outside that make you more effective at the things you get to do every day. Sorry, I just wanted to take a little quick aside for that piece. So let's bring it back to, you called yourself an HR transformation strategist. And I love that that term. I would love for you to give us some terms about how you would define a business transformation, because it seems like this, whenever someone mentions that, it's this very vague and amorphous thing that you can't wrap your arms around. I'd love for you to give us a definition we can stand on.
0: Sure. Ben, I'll give a definition which works for me. And how i describe what i do every day to my teams and my stakeholders i do see that in the world today everybody wants to talk about digital transformation and wants to adopt it there is enough research out there by the way which says everybody wants it but everybody's struggling with it as well my my definition is a good business transformation is about making things better for the people who are at the center of that change and let me you know maybe explain it a little bit more from the aspect of why I use these words. If we want to transform and and do things differently, we always have a big why. We have a purpose why we are going after. Einstein said, stupidity is doing the same things and expecting different results. And to me, transformation means that I will intentionally choose to give myself pain because it's tough. It's not easy to make those choices. And yet be driven by what it will achieve for you as an organization or you as a person. So when I think about transformation, I say, how would you make a preferred way of working, which will create delightful experiences for people at the center of that change? And it could mean different things for different people. But this concept of business transformation, the moment you say it is about making things better for people who you serve through that business or that function, suddenly changes the way you look at change because you're no longer saying let's log uh, the next best technology solution let's get the next best chatbot going for me you say what would it solve for me and what would it do for the people who i intend to serve through that solution and i come across so many people who talk about transformation in the way of launching an automated solution and i feel if you do not look at solutions from the lens of the flow of work and how it changes it to be better for people, then you somewhere have lost the game because you're more interested in getting technology out there without realizing what that technology could do for you or should do for you because you're spending a lot of money out there. So
1: that's what it means to me on a daily basis. One of the things you said really struck me. You talked about we're making this change. It's going to be an intentional hardship, essentially, right? We are choosing to cause some short-term pain because we want the long-term benefits. And you and I both know that in our personal lives and our working lives, oftentimes the best decision to make is the one that hurts a little bit now, but it's going to be great for the long term. And yet, the easy thing to do is to hold off to say, "No, let's just wait. Let's now. It's not the right time." And that's an example of doing the complete opposite, saying, well, let's do the easy thing right now, and then we'll yeah. try to catch up later. And I use the example often of, of Blockbuster and Netflix and say, it's, you can't always catch up later. Even if you think you can, you can't always run three times as fast and be able to, yeah. to beat your competition or to serve your people. By the time you realize that you've done the wrong thing or you haven't solved that thing that was such a frustration for them, they may be gone. And so yeah. I love that you talked about that intentional hardship piece of this because that's a reality.
0: Yeah. if i can if i can just add on to that ben a little bit sure um, when you go down the journey of intentional hardship i think it's all about intentional trade-offs it is all about saying which one will i choose to go big on versus which one i will not do because oh you know what i don't have enough money or i don't have enough resources or this is not the right time. And one of my design thinking coaches uh, taught me this and really drilled in my head. And they said that as you think about human-centered innovation, you should think about desirability first because the moment you start putting constraints first, it creates a negative perspective towards every change you wanna start. Having said that, viability is important right? Feasibility is important. And at the right time, once you've understood what can completely reimagine the way work gets done, or the world functions in that specific area, or for those set of people, put the lens of saying, what are my trade-offs I am choosing to go big on today? And then I can park some things, but have a line of sight towards it. And to me, transformation at its core has to constantly keep you honest, because it's not a big bang Thing that happens once in a lifetime of an organization, right? It happens all the time. You have to be intentional about it and you have to put in resource and mind around it. You can't delegate it to the lowest level in your organization and then say, oh my God, why are we not changing fast enough? So, transformation also needs a lot of focus and attention from leadership. But at the same time, you have to protect some early good ideas from people who will be naysayers and you will always run into such folks.
1: That's really, a goodness, I'm making a ton of notes over here, by the way. I'm, I'm enjoying this so much. Not thinking constraints first, thinking about what we desire, what outcome, what we're trying to shoot towards and, and trying to achieve. So I'd love to hear from you. That's a good that's a good kind of question, I guess, to ask is if we're thinking about a transformation, we need a new piece of technology, we're redesigning a process, we're trying to change, shift the values of the organizations, so we've realized not, they're not where we need to be. There's a thousand versions of what that transformation could be. What's the thing that we need to consider if we want to have a successful outcome? You talked about really looking at desirability. Is that looking at the outcome that we want to see? Is that trying to, that trying to capture all the good ideas first? How would you approach that?
0: That's a great question. If you have an outcome-based approach to everything you do, somewhere you start measuring every effort from the lens of what it is doing for people. And I keep using this word people a lot more because I think many more people have to look at transformation beyond data and tech and process, they have to look about how all these three come together to serve the people at the end of this this long assembly line of processes and activities we have in our organizations. So outcomes do matter. I also believe that just like beauty lies in the eyes of beholder, value lies in the eyes of end user. So if you really want to achieve the return on investment of transformation dollars, you must start with an end in mind and you must map it to what really matters at that point in time to the end users. Now, you gave an amazing example. There could be many outcomes of a transformation journey. You could say that I want to transform my new hire experience as they join my organization. You could also say that I want to make sure that I retain my experience resources and I don't lose them to to competition because I want to keep my great knowledge inside and I want to grow and invest in them. These are great vision statements to make. As organizations pick up elements of saying, what do I want to go big on? And I pick one of these elements. The first thing you need to do is drive alignment on what are you really solving for? And who are you solving this for? Are you solving for the leaders? Are you solving for the employee? Are you solving for a shared resource operator? Are you solving for HR business partner? Are you solving for the end user who your organization together serves? who you are solving this challenge for, you then work backwards and say, what would be the aspirations, the delighters, the frustrators for my end user? And once you have that clarity, you know what you are solving for. And that becomes almost like a rally cry for everybody around you to say, okay, this is what we're going after. Now, you may not know the path to it, But that's the fun. The whole innovation journey is all about iterations, right? You start with an idea and then you leverage the collective wisdom of people and say, how do I make this idea come to life? And as long as my true north is clear, I know I'm making progress towards that. So if there was one thing that really matters is figuring out what my real measure of success is. And I'll give an example from my recent experience. We've been on this journey of talent supply chain transformation in our organization for some time. And on the face of it, supply chain is all about making sure you staff people at the right time. And everybody needs to do that because we are all in the business of making sure that our assets, who are people, are able to do their best when they are working with us. And they would be functional metrics, right? You will measure how much time it takes for you to roll out offer. You will measure what does it take for you to, to make sure that the onboarding is done in the shortest possible time. You would also go ahead and say, okay, background checks. Can I make sure that I am fast in it and I am compliant in it to what I'm expected to do? Even something as simple as internal movements. You might just count how many people did I rotate within jobs? Now, that's one way to look at measuring output. But the outcome of all of this put together is really about saying that when i am impacting my speed to drive fulfillment of people what is the experience of new hires who join me do they have a sense of pride and clarity when do they feel connected and have a sense of belonging when they join and stay and work with you are you able to create connections and networks for them and why do you do that there is enough data out there if you interpret it well it will help you get insights, which will spark imagination to say, your transformation journey is not just making sure you onboarded 10,000 people in a period of time. Your transformation journey is about how quickly did you make them revenue generating for your organization? How quickly you made sure that you are impacting such emotional connection with your company so that they don't think about leaving you quickly. And especially those who have stayed enough they don't choose your competition over you because you are invested in constantly developing them and giving them visibility to new jobs. And on the face of it, again, supply chain is supply chain. There's demand, there's supply, and there's a control tower matching it. But deep under it, there are outcomes when stacked and clearly defined, people suddenly change the way they put in their effort, put in their weight, and probably drive the output in a very different manner so metrics make all the difference and outcomes when looked at from business standpoint versus an individual standpoint when you draw that connection that's where all the things start falling in place
1: i love the example of the onboarding because i had a chance yesterday i was talking to a leader who radically redesigned their onboarding approach and they. The headline for her was we saved 200,000 minutes a year of time we were spending just churning away at all these tasks. (laughs) But she said that may be the the top level, but what was most exciting for her is the other outcomes that that enabled. She said now, because we're doing that, we can be more personalized and tailored in that onboarding. We can make sure that Ben gets connected to two people who are likely to help him maintain a sticky relationship with us as a business. And started looking at that more strategically because they got out of the just transactional doing the stuff. And one of the other examples I use here that fits so well into this model you're building for us is performance management. We often think that, well, success is getting everybody to do it, right? Is that the goal that you want? Do you just want them to be compliant and to complete that? Or is this really about enabling every single person that works with us to be the very best performer they can be? And again, it's one of those, those things where we don't stop to think about, as you said, what is that end result we're shooting for and designed for that? Instead, it's how can we make this as efficient as possible? So they just do it and it's done and without actually having the right outcome or impact that they're looking for. Onboarding is beyond just checking a bunch of boxes. It's how do we make sure you're connected, you're enabled, you can perform, you can ramp up and you can do the best work that you can possibly do. It's not yeah. just about making sure your tax forms are done and all the other kind of fun stuff that sometimes <laughs> we get wrapped up in.
0: Absolutely. And many years back when I was leading uh, one of the businesses, HR and uh, capability development, there was this very interesting conversation I had with my business leader. And we were talking about, we were trying to reimagine the way we give service to our customers. And we were saying, how do we make sure that our people are gearing up for that? And we were looking at many aspects. Okay, One part is, of course, talent development and invest in learning paths and get the journeys and the other part was okay let's make sure that uh, we are getting a great talent pool inside Genpack, which has not been there so in our company we we went through a lot of internal thinking and a very simple model then emerged from that conversation with my business leader and I, I love to quote it everywhere because it's so simple and it's so profound we call it three e's and we laughed over it because suddenly it became three E's. And I was like, okay, maybe I should copyright this, but it was fun. The first E was enablement. So are my employees able to do what they are supposed to do? So as part of that goal of enabling somebody, I would say, can I give them the learning frameworks as well as learning paths, the knowledge repositories, people who would be their experts and guides and coaches. So how do you create that ecosystem of constantly learning something that they're supposed to be through a skill or some delivery that they have to do. So enablement is a big tower. The second tower is all about enforcement. Just because I'm able to do something does not mean I'm supposed to do it. So am I embedding it seamlessly into the performance measurement system? How are the goals being defined? If collaboration is something that I want everybody to do, am I teaching people the skills it takes and giving them the tools and techniques to be able to collaborate virtually? And then am I supposed to do that? You know, maybe I'm not supposed to do that because it's nowhere written that I'm supposed to collaborate, but am I embedding it in the way I'm defining goals that you don't just have individual goals, but you have team goals. And, and then the third part, which is really important after enforcement is encouragement. And people don't realize just because I have a great training program and I put it in somebody's goal that you've got to get certified. does not mean I'm willing to do that. And if you don't impact the will of people to do something, then why will they generate those results for you? Just because you're able to, and some somebody once told me this, just because you're able to, and you're supposed to, doesn't mean you're willing to. And if organizations don't invest in uh, figuring out ways to encourage that personal motivation to do something by role models leaders walking the talk, your recognition system which is far more inclusive than just for select few and everybody's fighting for the select few and then where's collaboration then so as a theme i use collaboration as an example but it works all the time so if you're an organization which is going through a big leap and you want your people behind it then you have to think about all three probably 70 percent is encouragement which is all about your culture and what you do there 10 percent is enforcement and the rest is about saying okay let me get the training and the technologies in place and and the data and the enablers in place to just get them going and then results will happen so transformation is similar if you are changing you want different outcomes from an enterprise function you have to figure out are you enabling your people to adopt the new tech or the data that you want them to use tomorrow Are you then making sure they're supposed to use that? Because maybe it's an option, I'm supposed to ignore it. And then how am I inspiring everybody to learn from each other? So collaborative learning is so powerful, but many organizations have not figured out structural ways to do that. And that's so core to driving change uh, on a day-to-day basis and even at long-term and and long-range basis for organizations.
1: I want to ask you 20 more questions, by the way. Every time you share something, <laughs> it opens up all these other things that I'm curious about. But I think the next logical step is you've hinted at this a couple of times about res- measuring the actual success of this. And obviously, the success depends on going back to the beginning and figuring out, hey, what do we want this to look like at the beginning? Um, I've, you probably would love this, or, but I tell people all the time, they I talked to leaders who say, hey, we're doing this thing. We want to figure out how to measure it. The best time to decide how to measure it is before you start. So especially when it comes to the transformation, something like that, decide what you're going to actually use to measure that or what the outcome looks like. Or I told someone this morning, what does success look like? Define that because we're really good at saying this doesn't work or that doesn't work that way or we don't like how this looks, but we haven't stopped to say if it worked, this is what the outcomes will be. This is what success looks like. So let's take one of those examples you've made about a few times. The Let's say we're adopting a new piece of technology that's going to be employee-facing. How do we decide what success looks like? What are the outcomes we should be shooting for? And who do we share those outcomes with? Do we report that up? Do we just keep that in our own little bubble? That's a softball pitch to you, I think. But talk about that a little bit. <laughs>
0: Okay, this is an amazing question because as a Lean Six Sigma practitioner, it was taught to me that what gets measured gets improved. And then I learned design thinking and I learned the concept of uh, that as you keep investing in making things better, if you don't measure it from the eyes of the people you were serving, then it doesn't make any difference because their experiences stayed where they were and you just threw in a lot more technology on them. I'll take the example of the tech implementation we did in one part of our supply chain, which was resource management. It's very practical. Everybody needs to know what's the demand of people. Everybody needs to know what's your internal supply pool. And then everybody needs to take decisions whether we will hire from outside or we will get people from inside the company to serve uh, the customer. And most people will think about it like saying, okay, how much demand is there and how much supply is inside? And then let's just go ahead and convince people to either release those internal people or just take a call and let's open demand from external inside the company. You can definitely look at it from that standpoint, but then that will be a very siloed view of a function which is responsible to fulfill demand. The moment you elevate it, and elevate it in terms of saying, what is the connection of this particular measure to the higher order? Now, what is the higher order? Why do we need people in any service organization? We need people because you typically get paid per person or you are being paid for a service and the service is provided by people. So you get paid by transaction, you get paid by outcome. You were influencing an outcome for a customer and you were trying to make sure that your people are giving such awesome service that outcome for that organization is met. But at the core is a set of people who have to be available to do that part of work. so while I can just say, I need 10 people, give me 10 people. And how quickly can you give me 10 people? But if I spin it and I say, what's that? the higher order is, how quickly can I make revenue from the person I need? So if the customer needs a person on first of the month and I give them on 15th of the month, I'm losing revenue. If, I, if the customer needs a person on first of the month and give them 15 days early, then I am bearing extra cost without getting revenue on that cost. So the moment you start thinking about outcomes from the lens of revenue, suddenly the interest of senior leadership is there. Because instead of saying, I want investments because I want to improve the demand and supply visibility and set up a control tower for you, and I want X million dollars for that, I change the story and I say, you hire 10,000 people in a year, and it typically takes you 50 days to hire them. If I was to have technology that can increase the visibility of the demand forecast and increase the visibility of supply forecast internally, then I can do proactive matching and I can take proactive bets on who will be internal moved and I will train them and make them ready proactively versus who will be hired outside because typically people from outside will take longer to come in and costlier to get in. And, And I changed the whole story by saying, I need X millions to buy this tech that allows you to do that. Mm -hmm. Or I could say that for the 10,000 people that I'm hiring and from 50 days, if I can reduce it to 35 days, 15 days, I can make sure that I give you these people earlier than what your current entitlement of the system is. I can influence your revenue acceleration by these 15 days. Think about the impact so it's 10,000 and say for a day's work, I could get a revenue of say $500, I'm just throwing in there. So 10,000 people, $500, I say 15 days, which means I can get you earlier. You can actually go to the customer and tell I can start 15 days early than later. Just imagine the millions you will make in revenue acceleration. Now, even if you're not able to convert everybody to first day revenue generation because some people have to come they get trained and then they get into a customer service mode even if it's 50 percent you can do the math it's much higher than just asking for a few million dollars to make sure that you set up a great technology solution and we took that uh, approach and we said how we will enable internal movement of people and not just help you avoid cost because when people are tried you have to replace them and most people today are leaving you around the time frame of about 18 to 36 months because that's the time they feel let me do something interesting and new mm-hmm. and if i can enable an internal rotation process which is powered by good data good technology which gives end to end visibility to jobs and people then i can impact retention of people and every percent that i reduce we all know the war of talent is going on so every percentage on a base of ten thousand people Is a lot of people I don't have to hire. I don't have to train again. And I have people who will stay longer. They'll be far more engaged and they'll give far better service to your end customers. So there is business sense, but you could have fought the battle on saying, I need extra money to buy a new application versus saying, I'm here to accelerate your revenue realization, to avoid cost. And in the process, create awesome experiences which will influence people to stay longer Mm -hmm. with you. And why would you not get investments then?
1: Goodness. This is like a masterclass in demonstrating value, (laughs) I feel like. And I don't know if that comes back to your Lean Six Sigma background, if that comes to the design thinking thought process. So I think that combination of things really gives you a unique perspective on the world and helps all of us as talent leaders, as business leaders, to think about that at the higher level and how we can have that impact. So I've enjoyed this so much. If someone wants to connect with you or follow you, What's the best way to do that
0: i'm most active on linkedin ben so linkedin is the best way to reach out to me uh, i do have a twitter handle but i'm not that active there in having conversations or exchanging views so linkedin is the best place
1: okay wonderful i'll make sure we get your linkedin handle into the the show notes the episodes and people can reach out and let you know how much they loved hearing from you because i know that i did thank you again for joining us for sharing your insights you're you're an incredible leader in the space and a an incredible teacher too, if you'll take that title, because I think the way that you approach this and the way you share it is very thoughtful and carefully crafted and it makes it much more understandable for the audience out there.
0: Thank you, Ben, for this opportunity. I loved being uh, in this conversation with you. It was awesome. Thank you for the chance.
1: Wonderful. Absolutely. To everybody else out there, Hope you enjoyed today's episode of We're Only Human. And as you heard, so many good learning, so many good ideas we picked up today, but I really loved the three E's. So spend some time on encouragement, enablement and enforcement in that order this week and help your people to create a better experience. I'll catch you all next time on We're Only Human. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm honored to have you as a listener. If you enjoyed this episode, please take 10 seconds to rate it at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, if you know a friend that could benefit from today's conversation, please pass it their way. After all, a rising tide lifts all ships. To see show notes, sponsor information, and our full show archives, visit onlyhumanshow.com.